The Lord calls us to worship this morning from the book of Exodus chapter 15. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Amen. We thank you and we praise you for giving us life in another day that we may come together as your church to sing praises to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to exalt him and to hold him up. Lord, we thank you that you have called us to be your people, that as we gather today, we are the sons and daughters of the living God by your decree, by your power alone, and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem us and purchase us and cleanse us from our sins. We praise you today, and we worship you. And Lord, we pray now, joining our hearts together, as you taught your disciples to pray out loud, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. This morning for our confession of faith, we're going to be reciting together the Apostles' Creed. It's on page 845 in your hymnal if you'd like to look at it. I'm going to begin by asking you, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Hear these words of assurance from the book of Titus, chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
who gave us gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works amen let's continue to worship opening your hymnal to page number 100 singing holy 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 Jesus Christ. Last week we did, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
His only Son, our Lord. This week we're going to look at who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now the question I have that I think is hopefully going to be fun, and maybe we'll learn a little bit about you, is what is your favorite kind of magic trick? Do you like to see something disappear or appear? Do you like to see something that's really small be made really large? What kind of magic trick is your favorite? Your favorite magic trick is being changed into a small mouse. Okay? Any, anybody else? Did, nobody else likes magic? None of you boys like magic? Um, um, this man taught us that you can have a cup and a bottle mm-hmm. change times, but no one moves them. They move, but nobody moves them? It's a real trick. Okay. Okay. Well, there's something about magic that I've got to tell you, and you can still enjoy it and and like it, but magic, at least as you see it, if somebody's up on a stage and they have a table and different things in front of them, it's only an illusion. Magic isn't really real. You can't really make something disappear, can you? You can't really make something that's not there just appear, can you? Nobody can do it. Nobody here can do it. But when we confess on Sunday mornings that we believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Ghost, and that He was born of the Virgin Mary, you know there are people in the world today that believe that's nothing different than saying you believe in magic. You believe in something that doesn't exist that can. But when we say we believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Ghost, it is a miracle, a miracle of God that that happened. That the power of God was displayed when Jesus was born. And when it says that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, it also displays God's power to be able to come and to save His people. So that's what those two things mean. That God is able to do miracles, and they are real. It's not an illusion, it's true. And that it's also God's power on display that Jesus could be born from the Virgin Mary. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, I thank you that the things that you say and do are true and right and powerful. And Lord, as we sit here together today, as we talk about our confession of faith and what we believe, Lord, I pray that you would be with our covenant children, that as they read the Bible, as they go to Sunday school, and as they sit together now in worship, that as they hear your word, they would believe it by faith, that you would move and so move in their hearts that they would be convinced deep in their soul, of the truth of your word. That they would cling to it no matter what the world may tell them, what others may say, even if they laugh or make jokes, that to be a Christian, to believe the Bible, is true under your authority. Lord, we thank you and we praise you that you have opened our eyes that we might see and know the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. This morning for our responsive reading, we're going to be reading together out loud Psalm 80. It's on page 813 in your hymnal. Psalm 80. I'll begin with the light portion. 
Please respond out loud together with the bold. Psalm 80. Hear us, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. Awaken your might. Come and save us. God Almighty, how long will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have made us a source of contention to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Return to us, O God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. Let's stand together as we continue to worship, singing hymn number 32 Great is Thy Faithfulness.
that we support here at Lebanon. And I wanted to finish this week with two last prayer requests that they shared that they requested prayer for from our church. The first is that as they continue to finish their language learning and as they prepare to engage uh, in doing ministry in Cambodia, that they would have great wisdom as they think about engaging, that they would do the work that God has given them and that they would put their hearts in it. They also asked that we would pray that they would continue as a, as a couple and as a family to integrate into the country well. This is the, the first time and the longest time they've been out of the United States. And so it is easy when you are not near what is familiar to feel like you are alone and things are easy to be confused. And so it's easy also to not be rooted in who they are in Christ from a human standpoint. So they ask that we would pray for them that they would be rooted in their identity in Christ and that as they minister and as their family continues to grow and go through ordinary day-to-day things, that they would be clinging to Christ by faith. Let's pray for them now. Father, I thank You that we may call You our Heavenly Father, that we, in Your Word, are called the sons and daughters of the living God. Lord, it is a privilege and an honor, and we are unworthy apart from Your grace in our lives. Lord, I thank You that You have been with us this past week and that You have brought us here today in Your providence to worship You, to be with Your people, to experience the means of grace as we sing praises to You and pray and hear Your Word proclaimed. Lord, I pray that You would build up our hearts in faith, that You would fill us with Your Spirit even now as we prepare to hear the Word of God, that we would hear it and believe by faith, that the words of the Gospel would be powerful and real in our hearts and our minds, that we would be transformed in our thinking, to be thinking in a way that would be pleasing to You. Lord, as we join our hearts together as Your people to pray for Brennan and Becca and their family, Lord, I pray that You would be with them, that as they, they finish up the last few months of training and as they prepare to engage in the work that You have given them to do, Lord, I pray that You would give them great wisdom and discretion and energy and excitement that as they serve you in Cambodia, that they would have a heart for the people that they are there for. That what was burned in their heart 
before they traveled will be something that continues to guide them and encourage them as they serve You. Lord, I do pray that You would help their heart heart sickness as they think about wanting to be home and back here. Lord, I pray that You would sustain them and give them grace to serve You there. Lord, I thank You for people who desire to go and to serve You in a foreign land in a place that they don't know with people they don't know and things that are not familiar. And I pray, Lord, that they would be rooted and grounded in their identity in You. That You have called them to this work just as You have called them to Yourself. And Lord, I pray that You would give them delight in it. That they would enjoy what You have given their hands to do. And I pray that You would protect their family. That You would keep them in the faith. That they would, in the midst of dreary days sometimes, in the midst of days when all they have is the energy to put one foot in front of the other, that You would sustain them. And Lord, I pray also for our church family here as we, as we go through ordinary days ourselves, that we would be rooted and grounded in love for You. That Your Word would be what our hearts desire. That we want to honor You and obey You and walk with You every day. Lord, thank You for the privilege that we have to open Your Word freely. To be able to read it in our homes and discuss it around our tables. To have it with us as we go to work or go off to lunch. To be able to open the Bible and to read it and to feed upon Christ. Lord, I pray that we would do that and not take it for granted. And Lord, I pray for those who are in leadership in our country. For our President and Vice President. For His Cabinet. For our Congress and our House. That You would be with all of those in authority over us. That we would be able to lead quiet and peaceable lives for Your glory. In Jesus' name I pray all these things. Amen. This morning as we prepare to open God's Word, open to Ruth chapter 1 verses 19 to 22 will be our scripture reading this morning. We'll finish chapter 1 in Ruth and we're continuing our series entitled Searching for a Redeemer. The sermon this morning is entitled A Question. Is this Naomi? Ruth chapter 1 beginning in verse 19. This is the Word of the Lord. Now the two of them went up until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they came to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. The sermon this morning is entitled, Is This Naomi? One of the greatest needs and challenges in the church today, not only in our church, but in the church triumphant, the church universal, is for God's people to think biblically about life. Not just to get up in the morning and remember what things you have to do and what was left over from the day before and to set your mind to do it, but to think biblically about life. I don't mean that we take the correct side on the moral issues of our day, though that is certainly included. I mean that we would truly enter into every day the struggle of putting off what the Apostle Paul calls worldly wisdom 
the way to think about life, and having the mind of Christ being formed in us. The Apostle Paul believed that this is a battle for biblical thinking that you and I must engage in as Christians. And he believes that this work is initiated and sustained by none other than God Himself. It's not a a self-work effort. It's nothing you can do on your own. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. The story of Ruth that we have been looking at for these last weeks challenges us to be renewed in our mind about the purpose and the work of God and in what situations and in what locations He can work in and through us as His people and that the people that He has put in our lives are there not by chance but because He in His mighty providence has placed them there for His glory and for our good. I want to read another verse from the hymn we've been reflecting on the last few weeks. God works in a mysterious way. One of the last verses says, His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Is this Naomi? This morning as we look at this passage of Scripture, we see the ladies walking into town, Ruth and Naomi, together. That's our first point. The ladies' widows walk into town. And as we read those verses, I wonder if you thought or if you paid attention to what could be some insignificant details, some filler language that the writer gives us. It says, Now the two of them came until they came into Bethlehem. This is two women alone traveling on the road with real dangers and real reasons to have fear. And yet here in this seemingly insignificant verse, just giving you travel language in verse 19, we see that God is faithful to Naomi and to Ruth. They made it from Moab to Bethlehem. If you'd been on that trip with Naomi, maybe you would have seen her stopping and reflecting and maybe weeping some. She had memories of a trip Places that she and her husband and her two sons stopped over ten years ago as they made their way from Bethlehem to Moab. And maybe she would have wept as she looked at the places they stopped for a meal or to camp as they went on their trip. When her family was still intact, when it seemed that God was still on the throne of her life. As we think about these seemingly insignificant details, I want to remind you and encourage you that it is a matter of praise and thankfulness or it should be, that we go to work and go out of our homes every day and we come home safely. It is the work of God in your life. When you say, what is God doing for me? How has He helped me? How can I know that His hand is upon my life and in my family? You can know for sure if you went out and you come home and you sit at the table together as a family. Praise the Lord. He is with us. It is His mighty hand that has taken care of us as a family. As they came into town, the town of Bethlehem was buzzing. It says that it was literally stirred. There were people chattering. There was energy and excitement. And all of the city, it says in verse 19, was excited because of them. The news of Naomi's return has spread throughout the whole town. Literally, people are talking about it. And this is an okay, maybe benign kind of gossip. 
She's fat. Did you see her? I haven't noticed. Where's Elimelech? Where's Malin and Killian? I haven't seen them yet. Maybe they're in another part of the, the traveling party. And the ladies in verse 19 ask, Is this Naomi? Is that the lady we saw go over ten years ago? There were obvious, visible differences as the people looked at her, at least enough to raise the question and why the women asked, Is this her? Is this really the same lady that left? Maybe she's got a few more gray hairs. Maybe there are more distinct lines on her face. Those certainly would have changed her appearance. She would look a little different. But in fact, ancient widows in this time would dress the part of being a widow. Her clothes would have testified to sorrow and to death. And the lack of presence of her husband and her two sons meant that something very tragic had happened in her family. The other glaring difference, it's interesting as this dialogue takes place between Naomi and the women of Bethlehem, is that if it weren't for the narrator, we wouldn't even know that Ruth was there. When she was asked, is this Naomi? And she tells them, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because I went out full and the Lord, Jehovah, brought me back empty. And you're kind of left thinking, well, here's Ruth over here somewhere, she must be close. What about me, Naomi? I'm here. But there is some grief in her heart. Her home is empty in a different way. A way that it has never been before. Why is she here? Who is this Moabite woman? How dare you come back and bring a foreigner, someone who doesn't belong, into our community? These women, these widows, enter the town of Bethlehem. Secondly, I want to look at what she says to the women as they ask her. Is this Naomi? She says, call me Mara. Call me Mara. In the Bible, names point to realities, to truth, to significant things that happened day in and day out in their lives. She says, don't call me Naomi, because it means pleasant or lovely. But call me Mara, which means bitter. And she says exactly why. In verse 20, the Almighty... God Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full. He brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Because God Almighty has testified against me. And He is the one who has afflicted me. In verse 21. Why would you call me that name? Things have been bitter for me. And I want to talk with you for a few moments this morning. As we think about this text and what it means that Naomi and Ruth are coming back into the town of Bethlehem and the significance that we know exists, that they don't know. If you were listening to to Naomi and you had your Bible in front of you, would you look at her and say, Dear Naomi, if you could only see a few chapters into your future, how the Lord truly is with you. He hasn't left you bitter. He is with you. I want to ask you, we talked about this over the last few weeks. We talked about it as we opened this book. We talked about what it means to belong to God. But think in your heart. You don't have to answer out loud. Is it possible for Naomi, a widow, a woman, who has a foreign daughter-in-law with her, coming back into the city of David, is there any usefulness that she could have in the kingdom of God? Is it possible for a widowed woman to be a servant of the Lord? To be useful, an older widowed woman? Can she have a place in the family of God? Any role at all that would be significant? 
Or is she only held up for us in the Bible as someone upon whom we should have pity and hope that people in in God's family will take care of her? Is she useful? Remember, this was a male-dominated society. It was. A man was needed for a woman to have a sense of security, to have any sense of worth or identity, safety, usefulness. And yet I want to challenge that a little bit. As the thought of the day, just because the culture thought that way doesn't mean that it's right. Just because it was ordered that way doesn't mean that that's the way God designed the world. As He made Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1 and verses 26 to 28, it says that God said, let us make man in our image. And then it says of both of them, male and female, we will make them in our image. They received God's blessings, both Adam and Eve. And then He gave them instructions, them both. It says, let them subdue the earth and have dominion over it. I ask you again, is it possible for an elderly widow woman to have a place of usefulness in the kingdom of God? A place in God's church? I believe that a woman's high calling as God's image bearer renders her incapable of being insignificant in the church. She absolutely has a place. No matter what has gone wrong in her life or how much she has lost, there is a kingdom to be built, the kingdom of the Lord. There is enemy territory to reclaim and she remains on active duty for Him, not a retirement or a leave of absence. She remains a vital part of the kingdom of the Lord being built. Jesus gave a very high view of His own mother when He was hanging on the cross in agony and in pain. In John chapter 19, verses 26 to 27, He's almost about to breathe His last. And He looks at His mom. And He says to her, Woman, behold your son. Looking at John. And then he looks at John and says, Behold, your mother. At the end of that passage in verse 27, it says, From that time on, the disciple took her into his own home. Conceivably, he wouldn't have done that if Joseph was still living. Before Jesus died, he made sure that his mom, Mary, was taken care of. He had a high view of this widow who could have gone into insignificance because her son is about to die. It's going to happen. Jesus is not going to make it off of that cross alive. And He takes care of His mom. He shows us that she is not insignificant in the kingdom. As we think about usefulness in God's kingdom, I believe that Naomi does three things at least for us. She instructs us, she exposes us, and she serves God's purposes as a woman as a woman on her own in right standing before the Lord. She instructs us by her very presence with those widow's clothes on as she walked into town. She would force people to awaken from relative complacency, just going through life, making it from one task to the next, one workday to the next. She wakes us from relative complacency to consider eternal matters of life and death and ask questions like, is sin really real? Is there really a place called heaven or hell? And is it possible that everyone in the world goes to one place or the other? 
That's what she does simply by walking in the room. She didn't have to say anything to evoke those thoughts in people's minds. Those widows' clothes and her sullen face would have expressed that. It would cause people to think about matters of life and death, of truth, not just making it from one day to the next, or what's the next thing that I can buy, or the next fun thing I hope to do. It forced them to think about it in reality. In Psalm 90 verse 12 it says, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Number two, she exposes us. We affirm in our hearts and with our mouths every Sunday specific truths about God's providence and His work in the world. What do we or what will we do with the blessings and the wealth that God has given us? That's a question that is in our hearts and our minds as we think about this passage. She exposes us. Will we use everything that we have only for ourselves? Will we spend all of our wealth on ourselves? I'm not talking about will you give to the church or not. I mean after you have been faithful in your obligations to the church, after you pay your bills and you have income, will you use them for the sake of those who are disadvantaged among us or not? That is a question that is lingering here. It's not the welfare system that was to be there to take care of Naomi. Will God's people, being moved by His Spirit in them, take care of them? Will they think about her? Will it even be on their mind? She exposes us. In James chapter 1, verse 27, it says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted. From the world. That's what religion is, according to James. Lastly, she serves God's purposes. In her faith and practice, she proclaims that it is by God's hand that his people are sustained, not by our wealth or our good fortune or our skills, even though he chooses all of those things for us. But I believe Naomi shows us that she, in the midst of her position, her lowly position in society, She's serving God's purposes. Think of some examples in the Bible. Think of the widow who gave in the temple and Jesus just happened to see it in Luke chapter 21. He said that she gave more than everyone else because she gave by faith. Jesus elevates this widow who gave what we call the widow's mite, one little bit of money, a small insignificant amount that wouldn't have been enough to keep the lights on or to keep things going for the next day of worship. Jesus holds her out to us, not as an object of our pity. Do better, church. Do better. Take care of people who are insignificant, or seemingly insignificant, according to the culture standards. He says, look at her, a premier disciple in my kingdom. She's willing to give everything that she has for the sake of the kingdom. You should look at her. Take note. Or what about the widow at Zarephath in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verses 8 to 24? There's a widow out gathering sticks. She has just enough flour and just enough oil to prepare one meal. And when God sends Elijah and he goes there, he says this widow is going to make a meal for you. So he goes. And when he finds her collecting sticks, he says, please, go get me some water. And as she goes to get the water, he says, by the way, please make something for me to eat. And she comes back and she says, maybe with fear and trembling, I don't have any bread for you. I have enough flour and enough oil to make something for us and my son and I, we're about to die. 
She is given into that. She knows it's about to happen. It's a time of famine in the land. Another time of famine. And he tells her, you go and do it. The flour will not run out and there will not be any lack of oil in your jar. And it says just after that in 1 Kings 17 that that's the way it happened. And she and her family ate for several more days of note in a time of famine when there was nothing else put in the box and nothing else put in the jar of oil. This premier disciple of the Lord Jesus, she obeyed. She did what the prophet told her to do. She was serving by faith. She said, I'm prepared to die. If I give you our last meal, I'm prepared to die. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But she served. And she was faithful. And I can't help but think, and I try to hold this together, I cannot help but think of dear women in our church whom the Lord has blessed us with, who has made part of their life maybe a bit bitter as they think about being a widow themselves. They're not people for our pity. By God's grace, they are people to esteem and love and cherish. He has been so faithful to them and He is faithful to us through them. By God's grace, praise the Lord for the widows that He has given us to shout to us, He is faithful and good and He provides and He cares for His church and He cares about His church. He cares about what you're going through and how difficult the days are. He cares. And He is with you. There is no one insignificant in the church. No person that the blood of Jesus was spilled for that is less significant than anyone else. And particularly not women. Especially not. You wonder, as she came into town, is Naomi embodying bitterness? She said, call me Mara. For God has been very, made this very bitter for me. I wonder if you're asking, is she embodying bitterness? Or is she embracing God's plan for her life? How do you interpret Naomi's words? There are some commentators that make it something very sharp and distinct. She is angry at God. She is upset about what has taken place in her life. She cannot level with the fact that the Almighty has been so hard on her. But it's not really that clear. When Naomi spoke to the women, she didn't say, I am very bitter. Or the Lord has embittered me. But that her pathway of life has been a bitter one. The steps that I have had to walk. The road that I have had to go down is different than you. And it has been hard and difficult. When she says call me Mara. Call me bitter. Rather than Naomi. Don't call me pleasant or sweet. It's not because the Lord has made her a bitter twisted woman. But because bitter experiences have been the hallmark, hallmark of her life. Ever since she left town, things have gone from bad to worse. I don't believe it's because she is bitter with God or that she has turned her back on Him. I don't believe she would have taken the trip back to Bethlehem if that were the case. But what was Mara in Israel's history? Very briefly, very short and quick history lesson. What was Mara in Israel's history? What would it have called to mind for these people as she explained to them the faithfulness and providence of God? In Exodus chapter 15, you might remember the story. In verses 22 to 26, 
the people of Israel had just crossed the Red Sea. And it says that they went three days' journey into the wilderness and they came to a place called Marah. And as they stooped down to drink the water there, they had to spit it out because it was bitter and they couldn't taste it. And after they had seen the wonders of God, He had saved them from their enemies. They walked on dry ground. What had been the Red Sea stood up like walls and they went through it. And three days' journey into the wilderness and drinking bitter water, they complained against Moses. And Moses cried out to the Lord and he said, Lord, what are you doing? These people are here with me. These waters are bitter. What are you doing? Can you please provide? And the Lord answers him and he points him to a tree and he takes that tree and he throws it in the water and it makes the water sweet. Perhaps Naomi saying, call me Mara, call me bitter, is because she wanted God's people to remember that even though life circumstances for me may be very tragic, incredibly tragic, that pain is real and grief is deep and it doesn't pass with time. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Time doesn't change anything. It is not a guarantee. Ten years, twenty years, pain is real. But that every time they saw her, as she approached them in those widow's clothes, and as they greeted her with the name Mara, that they would remember that it is the strong hand of the Lord God Almighty who makes bitter things sweet, who gives strength to endure, and who provides for His people. Point number two, call me Mara. And lastly, anticipating the harvest at the end of chapter 1. I mentioned this when we began this chapter, that as you hear these what seem like details from the writer, he's not just giving you details about location or the time of year so that you have a picture in your mind. He's telling you something significant and redemptive about what's taking place in the life of God's people. They're anticipating a harvest at the end of this chapter. At the beginning, they had been suffering under a famine. It's why Elimelech and his family left Bethlehem altogether. And so now at the end of chapter 1, it says that they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Yes, there was a stir in town because Naomi was back. There was a stir in town because they wanted to hear, what happened? Why are you back? And by the way, who is this foreign woman with you? And why is she here? And they are anticipating a harvest. But God is the one who is preparing them. In God's providence, all of them have been been prepared by God. Naomi included. That God would give them eyes to see and ears to hear. That their hearts would be particularly ready in a different way than they could have been if they had been enjoying success and goodness and if all of their barns had been full. God was ready to work with them and among them in a particular way. The famine had come and was now broken. They had cried out to God and repented. He sent the rains that had been withheld during the time of the famine. It was the beginning of the barley harvest and Naomi is home. Everyone is excited. There is at least a potential for a deeper spiritual awakening, a cleansing and a renewal in Bethlehem that perhaps they had not seen in years. This was a time that people were waiting Imagine what it was like for someone to come home who hadn't been there in so long. More than ten years. And no one seemingly had heard from her. 
And for her to come back with this Moabite convert to bring her into the family of the people of God. Someone who says that Jehovah, the true God, has broken through her idolatry, has caused her unbelief to turn into belief, and she has renounced her pagan ways and her pagan worship. Truly, God's people would have rejoiced because if He can work among foreigners in a foreign land, what else could it be? That He's the reason everything good is happening. He's the one who's working. What is He going to do in our midst? If He can do that in Moab, what will He do in Bethlehem? It takes only one conversion in the church for the people of God to believe again, not just in the potential power of His work in their midst, but His actual power in their day-to-day lives. The impact of an individual conversion of someone coming to faith would transform the whole community of God's people. They begin to believe that conversion is possible again. They pray for it, that God would grant it. And they would rejoice that He, the living God, is working in their midst again. Anticipating the harvest. I don't believe that there should just be rejoicing over the barley harvest here or that Naomi is coming home. I believe anticipating a harvest looks at something and looks for something else. God's salvation. The story of Naomi and Ruth point to a much greater reality in the Scriptures. Not the salvation of barley or the salvation of Boaz or his pity that he had on them or the enduring romance. The only thing I need is someone to love me. That is not the salvation that I believe this story points to. It points to the reality of God's redemption is established. And this is written in the pages of Scripture. That He is glorified in bringing life out of death. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 10 and 12, it says, Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Think of Stephen and Paul. Why was it significant that Luke would put those two stories so close together? In Acts chapter 7, you have the story of the death of Stephen. And there is Saul endorsing it, holding the jackets of the men who would do it. And Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus, they put, he puts those two things together, Luke does, on purpose. So that we would clearly see the connection between Stephen's death and Saul's conversion. Death was working in Stephen's life. And life was working in Saul's. And he was changed forever because of it. Think of Naomi and Ruth. The death of Elimelech, Malin, and Kilian, and the conversion of Ruth in the foreign land of Moab. All those horrible things that took place, but out of those sorrows God intended to bring life. Think about yourself and the Lord Jesus Christ and where you were going and where your life was headed apart from Him. And think of the death that brought life in your life. That He died that you might have true, abundant, forever, eternal life in heaven with Him, in His kingdom, forever. That He, on that cross, thought of you and of me and delivering and saving His people. You're not insignificant. You're not small. You are part of the kingdom of God. You are a son and daughter of the King. Rejoice. Your name is written in heaven. But what about your life? What about you? Do you see God's autograph 
His handwriting over your daily life. You might ask, why are we called to fill up what is still lacking in our fellowship in the sufferings of Jesus Christ according to Colossians chapter 1? The answer may lie partly in your own life and growing to be more Christ-like and more mature as a believer. But it is unlikely to lie there exclusively only. A large part of the things that you go through, the sorrows that you have, the griefs that you have, the difficulty, the day-to-day things that get under your skin, things that just seem like they ought to be able to work on their own, and they don't. Maybe those things are there so that they would be there in your life for someone else's benefit, someone else in the church. So as you look at your life and you say, is this really the life that I was supposed to have? Don't step back and be bitter because the Lord has given you a cup or a road that is not easy. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven and look to Him in faith that He is the God who takes bitter things and makes them sweet. Let us pray. Father, I thank You that You are the Almighty the one who sits on the throne, the one who commands this entire world and all of your people in it. Lord, I thank you that you are on the throne, that nothing happens apart from your plan. And Lord, I thank you that you have called us to be your people decisively through the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he said it is finished, it meant that all the payment for our sin was paid. Lord, I thank you that our names are written in your book and no one can take them out. Lord, give us faith today to believe that it is You who are working in our lives and not just chance. That the things we go through are not just because, but they are absolutely because You have brought them into our lives. And give us faith to believe that and grace to sustain us. We need it. We need to have a sense of Your presence and Your power. And Lord, I pray that You would encourage our hearts, that You do move in mysterious ways, but we may trust You and cling to You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's continue to worship now. Let's stand together and sing hymn number 128, God Moves in a Mysterious Way.
You may be seated as we take an offering to the glory of God. and most merciful Heavenly Father, from whom every gift that we receive comes from your hands as you have perfectly given it to us. We give you thanks and praise for your mercy above all, as we just heard. Oh, how you love us, your people. For your goodness that you have created us, your bounty from heaven that has sustained each of our families, and even for the discipline that you use to bring correction into to our lives, and the patience that you so graciously share upon us. 
and the love that has caused us to be redeemed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant us, Lord, with all of these gifts that you have given us that we would have a heart of love for you. Enable us to show our thanksgiving for all the benefits that you have given us by dedicating ourselves to you, to serve you and your people in this church and the community around us, and delighting in all the things that you have given us to do your will, to obey your word, to glorify you that way. We dedicate this offering to you, Lord, that it would be for your glory alone. And may we continue to see you meet our needs in our day, whether there is rain or whether there is not. Whether we have money or we do not, we abide in your presence and we depend on you. In Jesus' name, amen. the benediction of our Lord. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Amen.